Hey, welcome to Socialism for All. This file is being recorded for the June 2023 edition of Socialism for All, and it's an audiobook of Ludwig Feuerbach and the End of Classical German Philosophy by Engels from 1886. If you like this video, please click like and subscribe and consider supporting on Patreon at patreon.com slash socialism for all. There's a link to Patreon in the video description. So this piece is number 21 in the basic Marxism-Leninism study guide. We've been publishing works on that video playlist since the beginning of the channel, and we're now approaching the end of it. Only a few more works to go. I'll put a link to that in the video description and also in a pinned comment. So this piece was first written in 1886 and published the same year in Die Neue Zeit. The source is Progress Publishers, translated by Progress Publishers in 1946, HTML transcription and markup by Paul Taylor, proofed by Jim W. Jashevsky, 2003, and it's online at the Marxists Internet Archive, marxists.org. Thanks as usual to MIA for hosting this and thousands of other free Marxist texts. So we begin with Engels Forward. In the preface to A Contribution to the Critique of Political Economy, published in Berlin, 1859, Karl Marx relates how the two of us in Brussels in the year 1845 set about, quote, to work out in common the opposition of our view, the materialist conception of history, which was elaborated mainly by Marx, to the ideological view of German philosophy, in fact, to settle accounts with our erstwhile philosophical conscience. The resolve was carried out in the form of a criticism of post-Hegelian philosophy. The manuscript, two large octavo volumes, had long reached its place of publication in Westphalia when we received the news that altered circumstances did not allow of its being printed. We abandoned the manuscript to the gnawing criticism of the mice all the more willingly as we had achieved our main purpose, self-clarification. Since then, more than 40 years have elapsed, and Marx died without either of us having had an opportunity of returning to the subject. We have expressed ourselves in various places regarding our relation to Hegel, but nowhere in a comprehensive, connected account. To Feuerbach, who, after all, in many respects, forms an intermediate link between Hegelian philosophy and our conception, we never returned. In the meantime, the Marxist world outlook has found representatives far beyond the boundaries of Germany and Europe, and in all the literary languages of the world. On the other hand, classical German philosophy is experiencing a kind of rebirth abroad, especially in England and Scandinavia, and even in Germany itself, people appear to be getting tired of the pauper's broth of eclecticism, which is ladled out in the universities there under the name of philosophy. In these circumstances, a short, coherent account of our relation to the Hegelian philosophy, of how we proceeded, as well as of how we separated from it, appeared to me to be required more and more. Equally, a full acknowledgment of the influence which Feuerbach, more than any other post-Hegelian philosopher, had upon us during our period of storm and stress, appeared to me to be an undischarged debt of honor. I therefore willingly seized the opportunity when the editors of Neuzeit asked me for a critical review of Starke's book on Feuerbach. My contribution was published in that journal in the fourth and fifth numbers of 1886 and appears here in revised form as a separate publication. Before sending these lines to press, I have once again ferreted out and looked over the old manuscript of 1845-46, to the German ideology. The section dealing with Feuerbach is not completed. The finished portion consists of an exposition of the materialist conception of history, which proves only how incomplete our knowledge of economic history still was at that time. 
It contains no criticism of Feuerbach's doctrine itself. For the present purposes, therefore, it was unusable. On the other hand, in an old notebook of Marx's, I have found the 11 theses on Feuerbach, printed here as an appendix. And comment, that will be included as the next audiobook, number 22 in the Basic Marxism-Leninism Study Guide. Continuing. These are notes hurriedly scribbled down for later elaboration, absolutely not intended for publication, referring to the theses, but invaluable as the first document in which is deposited the brilliant germ of the New World Outlook. Frederick Engels, London, February 21, 1888. Part 1. Hegel. The volume before us, here referring to Starke's 1885 Ludwig Feuerbach, carries us back to a period which, although in time no more than a generation behind us, has become as foreign to the present generation in Germany as if it were already a hundred years old. Yet it was the period of Germany's preparation for the Revolution of 1848, and all that has happened since then in our country has merely been a continuation of 1848, merely the execution of the last will and testament of the revolution. Just as in France in the 18th century, so in Germany in the 19th, a philosophical revolution ushered in the political collapse. But how different the two looked. The French were in open combat against all official science, against the church, and often also against the state. Their writings were printed across the frontier in Holland or England, while they themselves were often in jeopardy of imprisonment in the Bastille. On the other hand, the Germans were professors, state-appointed instructors of youth. Their writings were recognized textbooks, and the termination system of the whole development, the Hegelian system, was even raised, as it were, to the rank of a royal Prussian philosophy of state. Was it possible that a revolution could hide behind these professors, behind their obscure, pedantic phrases, their ponderous, wearisome sentences. Were not precisely these people who were then regarded as the representatives of the revolution, the liberals, the bitterest opponents of this brain-confusing philosophy? But what neither the government nor the liberals saw was seen at least by one man as early as 1833, and this man was indeed none other than Heinrich Heine. Footnote there, Engels had in mind Heine's remarks on the, quote, German philosophical revolution, contained in the latter sketches on the history of religion and philosophy in Germany, written in 1833. Back to the text. Let us take an example. No philosophical proposition has earned more gratitude from narrow-minded governments and wrath from equally narrow-minded liberals than Hegel's famous statement, all that is real is rational, and all that is rational is real. That was tangibly a sanctification of things that be, a philosophical benediction bestowed upon despotism, police government, star chamber proceedings, and censorship. That is how Frederick William III and how his subjects understood it. But according to Hegel, certainly not everything that exists is also real, without further qualification. For Hegel, the attribute of reality belongs only to that which at the same time is necessary, Quote, in the course of its development, reality proves to be necessity. Unquote. A particular governmental measure, Hegel himself cites the example of a quote, certain tax regulation, is therefore for him by no means real without qualification. That which is necessary, however, proves itself in the last resort to be also rational. And applied to the Prussian state of that time, the Hegelian proposition, therefore, merely means this state is rational corresponds to reason, in so far as it is necessary, and if it nevertheless appears to us to be evil, 
but still, in spite of its evil character, continues to exist, then the evil character of the government is justified and explained by the corresponding evil character of its subjects. The Prussians of that day had the government that they deserved. Now, according to Hegel, reality is, however, in no way an attribute predictable of any given state of affairs, social or political, in all circumstances and at all times. On the contrary, the Roman Republic was real, but so was the Roman Empire which superseded it. In 1789, the French monarchy had become so unreal, that is to say, so robbed of all necessity, so irrational, that it had to be destroyed by the Great Revolution, of which Hegel always speaks with the greatest enthusiasm. In this case, therefore, the monarchy was the unreal and the revolution the real. And so, in the course of development, all that was previously real becomes unreal, loses its necessity, its right of existence, its rationality. And in the place of moribund reality comes a new, viable reality. Peacefully, if the old has enough intelligence to go to its death without a struggle, or forcibly, if it resists this necessity. Thus, the Hegelian proposition turns into its opposite through Hegelian dialectics itself. All that is real in the sphere of human history becomes irrational in the process of time, is therefore irrational by its very destination, is tainted beforehand with irrationality, and everything which is rational in the minds of men is destined to become real, however much it may contradict existing apparent reality. In accordance with all the rules of the Hegelian mode of thought, the proposition of the rationality of everything which is real resolves itself into the other proposition, all that exists deserves to perish. But precisely therein lay the true significance and the revolutionary character of the Hegelian philosophy to which, as the close of the whole movement since Kant, we must here confine ourselves, that it once and for all dealt the death blow to the finality of all products of human thought and action. Truth, the cognition of which is the business of philosophy, was in the hands of Hegel no longer an aggregate of finished dogmatic statements, which, once discovered, had merely to be learned by heart. Truth lay now in the process of cognition itself, in the long historical development of science, which mounts from lower to ever higher levels of knowledge without ever reaching, by discovering so-called absolute truth, a point at which it can proceed no further, where it would have nothing more to do than to fold its hands and gaze with wonder at the absolute truth to which it had attained. And what holds good for the realm of philosophical knowledge holds good also for that of every other kind of knowledge, and also for practical action. Just as knowledge is unable to reach a complete conclusion in a perfect, ideal condition of humanity, so is history unable to do so. A perfect society, a perfect state, are things which can exist only in imagination. On the contrary, all successive historical systems are only transitory stages in the endless course of development of human society from the lower to the higher. Each stage is necessary, and therefore justified, for the time and conditions to which it owes its origin. But in the face of new, higher conditions, which gradually develop in its own womb, it loses vitality and justification. It must give way to a higher stage, which will also in its turn decay and perish. Just as the bourgeoisie, by large-scale industry, competition, and the world market, dissolves in practice all stable, time-honored institutions, so this dialectical philosophy dissolves all conceptions of final, absolute truth, and of absolute states of humanity corresponding to it. For it, dialectical philosophy, nothing is final, absolute, sacred. It reveals the transitory character of everything and in everything. Nothing can endure before it except the uninterrupted process of becoming and of passing away, 
of endless ascendancy from the lower to the higher. And dialectical philosophy itself is nothing more than the mere reflection of this process in the thinking brain. It has, of course, also a conservative side. It recognizes that definite stages of knowledge and society are justified for their time and circumstances, but only so far. The conservatism of this mode of outlook is relative. Its revolutionary character is absolute, the only absolute that dialectical philosophy admits. Comment. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about a web of causality existing in the material realm where everything is changing, impermanent, only existing due to a particular set of circumstances which it itself may contribute to undermining or changing, thus paving the way for its own passing away and the rising of something else more appropriate to the new conditions. In other words, things exist for a certain period of time and they're justified by that time and circumstances, but that's it. Change is the only absolute. The, quote, conservative side that Engels refers to is that we may recognize a certain pattern existing for a period of time, but this is relative and will pass away. The ever-changing nature of the situation is what is really recognized here as primary. Continuing, it is not necessary here to go into the question of whether this mode of outlook is thoroughly in accord with the present state of natural science, which predicts a possible end even for the earth and for its habitability a fairly certain one, which therefore recognizes that for the history of mankind, too, there is not only an ascending but also a descending branch. At any rate, we still find ourselves a considerable distance from the turning point at which the historical course of society becomes one of descent, and we cannot expect Hegelian philosophy to be concerned with a subject which natural science in its time had not at all placed upon the agenda as yet. So comment here, various technologically induced existential threats such as artificial intelligence or climate change were not a thing yet in Engels' time, hence not mentioning them there. As far as the possible end even for the Earth, this may be a reference to something like the sun growing and swallowing up the inner planets. But as far as the history of mankind having an ascending and also a descending branch, um, even biological forms are transitional. So this thing about change being the only constant. We are transitional forms. All life is existing now because these are the conditions that everything has evolved to live in. As conditions change, life evolves from generation to generation to adapt. As long as those changes occur on a long enough timeline that life, in fact, can adapt. Otherwise, if changes are made too quickly, it's just simply toxic conditions and the organisms die. Survival to at least reproductive age is, of course, required for evolutionary processes. But, yeah, there is no ultimate biological form, nothing of the kind. There are just instances of life with varying degrees of success, struggling to exist, and adapting as they can within the limits of their genetic mechanisms, being shaped by the conditions in which they are struggling to exist. Continuing, but what must in fact be said here is this, that in Hegel, the views developed above are not so sharply delineated. They are a necessary conclusion from his method, but one which he himself never drew with such explicitness. And this indeed, for the simple reason that he was compelled to make a system, and in accordance with traditional requirements, a system of philosophy, must conclude with some sort of absolute truth. 
Therefore, however much Hegel, especially in his logic, emphasized that this eternal truth is nothing but the logical or the historical process itself, he nevertheless finds himself compelled to supply this process with an end, just because he has to bring his system to a termination at some point or other. In his logic, he can make this end a beginning again, since here the point of the conclusion, the absolute idea, which is only absolute insofar as he has absolutely nothing to say about it, alienates, that is, transforms itself into nature and comes to itself again later in the mind, that is, in thought and in history. But at the end of the whole philosophy, a similar return to the beginning is possible only in one way namely, by conceiving of the end of history as follows. Mankind arrives at the cognition of the self-same absolute idea and declares that this cognition of the absolute idea is reached in Hegelian philosophy. In this way, however, the whole dogmatic content of the Hegelian system is declared to be absolute truth, in contradiction to his dialectical method, which dissolves all dogmatism. Thus, the revolutionary side is smothered beneath the overgrowth of the conservative side, and what applies to philosophical cognition applies also to historical practice. Mankind, which, in the person of Hegel, has reached the point of working out the absolute idea, must also in practice have gotten so far that it can carry out this absolute idea in reality. Hence, the practical political demands of the absolute idea on contemporaries may not be stretched too far. And so we find at the conclusion of the philosophy of right that the absolute idea is to be realized in that monarchy based on social estates which Frederick William III so persistently but vainly promised to his subjects, that is, in a limited, moderate, indirect rule of the possessing classes suited to the petty bourgeois German conditions of that time, and moreover, the necessity of the nobility is demonstrated to us in a speculative fashion. The inner necessities of the system are therefore of themselves sufficient to explain why a thoroughly revolutionary method of thinking produced an extremely tame political conclusion. As a matter of fact, the specific form of this conclusion springs from this, that Hegel was a German, and like his contemporary Goethe, had a bit of the Philistine's cue dangling behind. Each of them was an Olympian Zeus in his own sphere, yet neither of them ever quite freed himself from German Philistinism. But all this did not prevent the Hegelian system from covering an incomparably greater domain than any earlier system, nor from developing in this domain a wealth of thought which is astounding even today. The phenomenology of mind, which one may call a parallel of the embryology and paleontology of the mind, a development of individual consciousness through its different stages, set in the form of an abbreviated reproduction of the stages through which the consciousness of man has passed in the course of history, logic, natural philosophy, philosophy of mind, and the latter worked out in its separate historical subdivisions, philosophy of history, right, of religion, history of philosophy, aesthetics, etc. In all these different historical fields, Hegel labored to discover and demonstrate the pervading thread of development. And as he was not only a creative genius, but also a man of encyclopedic erudition, he played an epic-making role in every sphere. It is self-evident that, owing to the needs of the system, he very often had to resort to those forced constructions about which his pygmy opponents make such a terrible fuss even today. But these constructions are only the frame and scaffolding of his work. If one does not loiter here needlessly, but presses on farther into the immense building, one finds innumerable treasures which today still possess undiminished value. 
With all philosophers, it is precisely the system which is perishable, and for the simple reason that it springs from an imperishable desire of the human mind, the desire to overcome all contradictions. But if all contradictions are once and for all disposed of, we shall have arrived at so-called absolute truth. World history will be at an end, and yet it has to continue, although there's nothing left for it to do. Hence a new, insoluble contradiction. As soon as we have once realized, and in the long run no one has helped us to realize it more than Hegel himself, that the task of philosophy thus stated means nothing but the task that a single philosopher should accomplish that which can only be accomplished by the entire human race in its progressive development. As soon as we realize that, there is an end to all philosophy in the hitherto accepted sense of the word. One leaves alone absolute truth, which is unattainable along this path or by any single individual. Instead, one pursues attainable relative truths along the path of the positive sciences and the summation of their results by means of dialectical thinking. At any rate, with Hegel, philosophy comes to an end. On the one hand, because in his system he summed up its whole development in the most splendid fashion, and on the other hand, because even though unconsciously, he showed us the way out of the labyrinth of systems to real, positive knowledge of the world. One can imagine what a tremendous effect this Hegelian system must have produced in the philosophy-tinged atmosphere of Germany. It was a triumphant procession which lasted for decades, and which by no means came to a standstill on the death of Hegel. On the contrary, it was precisely from 1830 to 1840 that Hegelianism reigned most exclusively, and to a greater or lesser extent, infected even its opponents. It was precisely in this period that Hegelian views, consciously or unconsciously, most extensively penetrated the most diversified sciences, and leavened even popular literature in the daily press, from which the average educated consciousness derives its mental pablum. But this victory along the whole front was only the prelude to an internal struggle. As we have seen, the doctrine of Hegel, taken as a whole, left plenty of room for giving shelter to the most diverse practical party views. And in the theoretical Germany of that time, two things above all were practical, religion and politics. Whoever placed the chief emphasis on the Hegelian system could be fairly conservative in both spheres. Whoever regarded the dialectical method as the main thing, could belong to the most extreme opposition, both in politics and religion. Hegel himself, despite the fairly frequent outbursts of revolutionary wrath in his works, seemed on the whole to be more inclined to the conservative side. Indeed, his system had cost him much more hard mental plugging than his method. Toward the end of the 30s, the cleavage in the school became more and more apparent, the left wing, the so-called young Hegelians, in their fight with the pietist orthodox and the feudal reactionaries, abandoned bit by bit that philosophical genteel reserve in regard to the burning questions of the day, which up to that time had secured state toleration and even protection for their teachings. And when in 1840 orthodox pietism and absolute feudal reaction ascended the throne with Frederick William IV, open partisanship became unavoidable. The fight was still carried on with philosophical weapons, but no longer for abstract philosophical aims. It turned directly on the destruction of traditional religion and of the existing state. 
And while in the Deutsche Jahrbücher the practical ends were still predominantly put forward in philosophical disguise, in the Rheinische Zeitung of 1842, the young Hegelian school revealed itself directly as the philosophy of the aspiring radical bourgeoisie and used the meager cloak of philosophy only to deceive the censorship. Footnote there, the Deutsche Jahrbücher für Wissenschaft und Kunst, or the German Annuals of Science and Art, this was the organ of the young Hegelians, edited by A. Ruga and T. Ectermeyer and published in Leipzig from 1841 to 1843. Back to the text. At that time, however, politics was a very thorny field, and hence the main fight came to be directed against religion. This fight, particularly since 1840, was indirectly also political. Strauss's Life of Jesus, published in 1835, had provided the first impulse. The theory therein developed of the formation of the gospel myths was combated later by Bruno Bauer with proof that a whole series of evangelic stories had been fabricated by the authors themselves. The controversy between these two is carried out in the philosophical disguise of a battle between self-consciousness and substance. The question whether the miracle stories of the Gospels came into being through unconscious traditional myth creation within the bosom of the community, or whether they were fabricated by the evangelists themselves, was magnified into the question whether, in world history, substance or self-consciousness was the decisive operative force. Finally came Stirner, the prophet of contemporary anarchism. Bakunin has taken a great deal from him, and capped the sovereign self-consciousness by his sovereign ego. Footnote here, Engels is referring to The Ego and His Own by Max Stirner, which was a pseudonym for Caspar Schmidt, appearing in 1845. Back to the text, we will not go further into the side of the decomposition process of the Hegelian school. More important for us is the following. The main body of the most determined young Hegelians was, by the practical necessities of its fight against positive religion, driven back to Anglo-French materialism. This brought them into conflict with the system of their school. While materialism conceives nature as the sole reality, nature in the Hegelian system represents merely the alienation of the absolute idea, so to say, a degradation of the idea. At all events, thinking and its thought product, the idea, is here the primary, and nature the derivative, which only exists at all by the condescension of the idea. And in this contradiction they floundered as well or as ill as they could. Then came Feuerbach's Essence of Christianity. Footnote here, this was from 1841. With one blow, it pulverized the contradiction, in that, without circumlocutions, it placed materialism on the throne again. Nature exists independently of all philosophy. It is the foundation upon which we human beings, ourselves products of nature, have grown up. Nothing exists outside nature and man, and the higher beings our religious fantasies have created are only the fantastic reflection of our own essence. The spell was broken, the system was exploded and cast aside, and the contradiction, shown to exist only in our imagination, was dissolved. One must himself have experienced the liberating effect of this book to get an idea of it. Enthusiasm was general. We all became at once Feuerbachians. How enthusiastically Marx greeted the new conception, and how much, in spite of all critical reservations, he was influenced by it, one may read in The Holy Family. This was a book by Marx and Engels, published in 1845. The full title is The Holy Family, or a Criticism of Critical Criticism, against Bruno Bauer and Company. That is kind of a long text. I do hope to do it eventually on the channel. Back to the text. 
Even the shortcomings of the book contributed to its immediate effect. Its literary, sometimes even high-flown style, secured for it a large public, and was at any rate refreshing after long years of abstract and abstruse Hegelianizing. The same is true of its extravagant deification of love, which, coming after the now intolerable sovereign rule of pure reason, had its excuse, if not justification. But what we must not forget is that it was precisely these two weaknesses of Feuerbach that true socialism, which had been spreading like a plague in educated Germany since 1844, took as its starting point, putting literary phrases in place of scientific knowledge, the liberation of mankind by means of love, in place of the emancipation of the proletariat through the economic transformation of production. In short, losing itself in the nauseous fine writing and ecstasies of love typified by Herr Karl Grun. Another thing we must not forget is this. The Hegelian school disintegrated, but Hegelian philosophy was not overcome through criticism. Strauss and Bauer each took one of its sides and set it polemically against the other. Feuerbach smashed the system and simply discarded it. But a philosophy is not disposed of by the mere assertion that it's false. And so powerful a work as Hegelian philosophy, which had exercised so enormous an influence on the intellectual development of the nation, could not be disposed of by simply being ignored. It had to be sublated in its own sense. That is, in the sense that while its form had to be annihilated through criticism, the new content which had been won through it had to be saved. How this was brought about, we shall see below. But in the meantime, the revolution of 1848 thrust the whole of philosophy aside as unceremoniously as Feuerbach had thrust aside Hegel. And in the process, Feuerbach himself was also pushed into the background. Part 2. Materialism the great basic question of all philosophy, especially of more recent philosophy, is that concerning the relation of thinking and being. From the very early times when men, still completely ignorant of the structure of their own bodies, under the stimulus of dream apparitions, came to believe that their thinking and sensation were not activities of their bodies, but of a distinct soul which inhabits the body and leaves it at death. From this time, men have been driven to reflect about the relation between this soul and the outside world. If upon death it took leave of the body and lived on, there was no occasion to invent yet another distinct death for it. Thus arose the idea of immortality, which at that stage of development appeared not at all as a consolation, but as a fate against which it was no use fighting, and often enough, as among the Greeks, as a positive misfortune. The quandary arising from the common universal ignorance of what to do with the soul once its existence had been accepted, after the death of the body, and not religious desire for consolation, led in a general way to the tedious notion of personal immortality. In an exactly similar manner, the first gods arose through the personification of natural forces. And these gods, in the further development of religions, assumed more and more extra-mundane form, until finally, by a process of abstraction, I might almost say of distillation, occurring naturally in the course of man's intellectual development, out of the many, more or less limited and mutually limiting gods, there arose in the minds of men the idea of the one exclusive god of the monotheistic religions. Thus the question of the relation of thinking to being, the relation of the spirit to nature, the paramount question of the whole of philosophy, has, no less than all religion, its roots in the narrow-minded and ignorant notions of savagery. But this question could for the first time be put forward in its whole acuteness, could achieve its full significance, 
only after humanity in Europe had awakened from the long hibernation of the Christian Middle Ages. The question of the position of thinking in relation to being, a question which, by the way, had played a great part also in the scholasticism of the Middle Ages, the question, which is primary, spirit or nature? That question in relation to the church was sharpened into this. Did God create the world, or has the world been in existence eternally? The answers which the philosophers gave to this question split them into two great camps. Those who asserted the primacy of spirit to nature, and therefore, in the last instance, assumed world creation in some form or another, and among the philosophers, Hegel, for example, this creation often becomes still more intricate and impossible than in Christianity, comprised the camp of idealism. The others, who regarded nature as primary, belonged to the various schools of materialism. These two expressions, idealism and materialism, originally signify nothing else but this, and here too they are not used in any other sense. What confusion arises when some other meaning is put to them will be seen below. But the question of the relation of thinking and being had yet another side. In what relation do our thoughts about the world surrounding us stand to this world itself? Is our thinking capable of the cognition of the real world? Are we able, in our ideas and notions of the real world, to produce a correct reflection of reality? In philosophical language, this question is called the question of identity of thinking and being, and the overwhelming majority of philosophers give an affirmative answer to this question. With Hegel, for example, its affirmation is self-evident, for what we cognize in the real world is precisely its thought content, that which makes the world a gradual realization of the absolute idea, which absolute idea has existed somewhere from eternity, independent of the world and before the world. But it is manifest without further proof that thought can know a content which is, from the outset, a thought content. It is equally manifest that what is to be proved here is already tacitly contained in the premises. But that in no way prevents Hegel from drawing the further conclusion from his proof of the identity of thinking and being that his philosophy, because it is correct for his thinking, is therefore the only correct one, and that the identity of thinking and being must prove its validity by mankind immediately translating his philosophy from theory into practice, and transforming the whole world according to Hegelian principles. This is an illusion which he shares with well-nigh all philosophers. In addition, there is yet a set of different philosophers, those who question the possibility of any cognition, or at least of an exhaustive cognition, of the world. To them, among the more modern ones, belong Hume and Kant, and they played a very important role in philosophical development. What is decisive in the refutation of this view has already been said by Hegel, insofar as this was possible from an idealist standpoint. The materialistic additions made by Feuerbach are more ingenious than profound. The most telling refutation of this, as of all other philosophical crochets, is practice, namely, experiment and industry. If we're able to prove the correctness of our conception of a natural process by making it ourselves, bringing it into being out of its conditions and making it serve our own purposes into the bargain, then there is an end to the Kantian, ungraspable thing in itself. The chemical substances produced in the bodies of plants and animals remained just such things in themselves until organic chemistry began to produce them one after another, whereupon the thing in itself became a thing for us, as, for instance, alizarin, the coloring matter of the matter, which we no longer trouble to grow in the matter roots in the field, but produce much more cheaply and simply from coal tar. For 300 years, the Copernican solar system was a hypothesis with 100, 1,000, 10,000 to 1 chances in its favor, but still always a hypothesis. 
but then Leverrier, by means of the data provided by the system, not only deduced the necessity of the existence of an unknown planet, but also calculated the position in the heavens which this planet must necessarily occupy. And when Johann Galle really found this planet, Neptune, discovered 1846 at Berlin Observatory, the Copernican system was proved. If, nevertheless, the Neo-Kantians are attempting to resurrect the Kantian conception in Germany, and the agnostics, that of Hume in England, where in fact it never became extinct, this is, in view of their theoretical and practical refutation accomplished long ago, scientifically a regression, and practically merely a shamefaced way of surreptitiously accepting materialism while denying it before the world. But during this long period, from Descartes to Hegel and from Hobbes to Feuerbach, these philosophers were by no means impelled, as they thought they were, solely by the force of pure reason. On the contrary, what really pushed them forward most was the powerful and ever more rapidly onrushing progress of natural science and industry. Among the materialists, this was plain on the surface, but the idealist systems also filled themselves more and more with the materialist content and attempted pantheistically to reconcile the antithesis between mind and matter. Thus, ultimately, the Hegelian system represents merely a materialism idealistically turned upside down in method and content. It is therefore comprehensible that Starke, in his characterization of Feuerbach, first of all investigates the latter's position in regard to this fundamental question of the relation of thinking and being. After a short introduction, in which the views of the preceding philosophers, particularly since Kant, are described in the unnecessarily ponderous philosophical language, and in which Hegel, by an all-too-formalistic adherence to certain passages of his works, gets far less his due, there follows a detailed description of the course of development of Feuerbach's metaphysics itself, as this course was successively reflected in those writings of this philosopher which have a bearing here. This description is industriously and lucidly elaborated, only, like the whole book, it's loaded with a ballast of philosophical phraseology by no means everywhere unavoidable, which is the more disturbing in its effect the less the author keeps to the manner of expression of one in the same school, or even of Feuerbach himself, and the more he interjects expressions of very different tendencies, especially of the tendencies now rampant and calling themselves philosophical. The course of evolution of Feuerbach is that of a Hegelian, a never-quite-orthodox Hegelian, true, into a materialist, an evolution at which a definite stage necessitates a complete rupture with the idealist system of his predecessor. With irresistible force, Feuerbach is finally driven to the realization that the Hegelian pre-mundane existence of the absolute idea, the pre-existence of the logical categories before the world existed, is nothing more than the fantastic survival of the belief in the existence of an extra-mundane creator, that the material, sensuously perceptible world to which we ourselves belong is the only reality, and that our consciousness and thinking, however supra-sensuous they may seem, are the product of a material, bodily organ, the brain. Matter is not a product of mind, but mind itself is merely the highest product of matter. This is, of course, pure materialism, but, having got so far, Feuerbach stops short. He cannot overcome the customary philosophical prejudice. Prejudice not against the thing, but against the name, materialism. He says, quote, To me, materialism is the foundation of the edifice of human essence and knowledge. But to me, it is not what it is to the physiologist, to the natural scientists in the narrower sense, for example, to Moleschott, and necessarily is from their standpoint and profession, namely the edifice itself. 
Backwards, I fully agree with the materialists, but not forwards, unquote. Here, Feuerbach lumps together the materialism that is a general world outlook, resting upon a definite conception of the relation between matter and mind, and the special form in which this world outlook was expressed at a definite historical stage, namely in the 18th century. More than that, he lumps it with the shallow, vulgarized form in which the materialism of the 18th century continues to exist today in the heads of naturalists and physicians, the form which was preached on their tours in the 50s by Buchner, Vogt, and Molschott. But just as idealism underwent a series of stages of development, so also did materialism. With each epoch-making discovery, even in the sphere of natural science, it has to change its form. And after history was also subjected to materialistic treatment, a new avenue of development has opened here too. The materialism of the last century was predominantly mechanical because at that time, of all the natural sciences, only mechanics, and indeed only the mechanics of solid bodies, celestial and terrestrial, in short, the mechanics of gravity, had come to any definite close. Chemistry at that time existed only in its infantile phlogistic form. Footnote here, phlogistic theory was a theory prevailing in chemistry during the 17th and 18th centuries that stated that combustion takes place due to the presence in certain bodies of a special substance called phlogiston. Back to the text. Biology still lay in swaddling clothes. Vegetable and animal organisms had only been roughly examined and were explained by purely mechanical causes. What the animal was to Descartes, man was to the materialists of the 18th century, a machine. This exclusive application of the standards of mechanics to processes of a chemical and organic nature, in which processes the laws of mechanics are indeed also valid, but are pushed into the backgrounds by other, higher laws, constitutes the first specific, but at that time inevitable limitations of classical French materialism. The second specific limitation of this materialism lay in its inability to comprehend the universe as a process, as matter undergoing uninterrupted historical development. This was in accordance with the level of the natural science of that time and with the metaphysical, that is, anti-dialectical manner of philosophizing connected with it. Nature, so much was known, was in eternal motion, but according to the ideas of that time, this motion turned, also eternally, in a circle, and therefore never moved from the spot. It produced the same results over and over again. This conception was at that time inevitable. The Kantian theory of the origin of the solar system, that the sun and planets originated from incandescent rotating nebulous masses, had been put forward but recently and was still regarded merely as a curiosity. The history of the development of the earth, geology, was still totally unknown, and the conception that the animate natural beings of today are the result of a long sequence of development from the simple to the complex could not at that time scientifically be put forward at all. The unhistorical view of nature was therefore inevitable. We have the less reason to reproach the philosophers of the 18th century on this account, since the same thing is found in Hegel. According to him, nature, as a mere alienation of the idea, is incapable of development in time, capable only of extending its manifoldness in space so that it displays simultaneously and alongside of one another all the stages of development comprised in it and is condemned to an eternal repetition of the same processes. This absurdity of a development in space, but outside of time, the fundamental condition of all development, Hegel imposes upon nature just at the very time when geology, embryology, the physiology of plants and animals, and organic chemistry were being built up, 
and when everywhere, on the basis of these new sciences, brilliant foreshadowings of the later theory of evolution were appearing, for instance, Goethe and Lamarck. But the system demanded it, hence the method, for the sake of the system, had to become untrue to itself. This same unhistorical conception prevailed also in the domain of history. Here, the struggle against the remnants of the Middle Ages blurred the view. The Middle Ages were regarded as a mere interruption of history by a thousand years of universal barbarism. The great progress made in the Middle Ages, the extension of the area of European culture, the viable great nations taking form there next to each other, and finally the enormous technical progress of the 14th and 15th centuries, all this was not seen. Thus, a rational insight into the great historical interconnectedness was made impossible, and history served at best as a collection of examples and illustrations for the use of philosophers. The vulgarizing peddlers, who, in Germany in the 50s, dabbled in materialism, by no means overcame this limitation of their teachers. All the advances of natural science which had been made in the meantime served them only as new proofs against the existence of a creator of the world, and indeed they did not in the least make it their business to develop the theory any further. Though idealism was at the end of its tether and was dealt a death blow by the revolution of 1848, it had the satisfaction of seeing that materialism had for the moment fallen lower still. Feuerbach was unquestionably right when he refused to take responsibility for this materialism, only he should not have confounded the doctrines of these itinerant preachers with materialism in general. Here, however, there are two things to be pointed out. First, even during Feuerbach's lifetime, natural science was still in that process of violent fermentation, which only during the last 15 years had reached a clarifying relative conclusion. New scientific data were acquired to a hitherto unheard of extent, but the establishing of interrelations, and thereby the bringing of order into this chaos of discoveries following closely upon each other's heels, has only quite recently become possible. It is true that Feuerbach had lived to see all three of the decisive discoveries, that of the cell, the transformation of energy, and the theory of evolution named after Darwin. But how could the lonely philosopher, living in rural solitude, be able sufficiently to follow scientific developments in order to appreciate at their full value discoveries which natural scientists themselves at that time either still contested or did not know how to make adequate use of. The blame for this falls solely upon the wretched conditions in Germany, in consequence of which cobweb-spinning eclectic flea-crackers had taken possession of the chairs of philosophy, while Feuerbach, who towered above them all, had to rusticate and grow sour in a little village. It is therefore not Feuerbach's fault that this historical conception of nature, which had now become possible, and which removed all the one-sidedness of French materialism, remained inaccessible to him. Quick comment here, and those who don't like the quick comments will note this is only the second one in 46 minutes. But anyway, talking about the ability to integrate all the data, all the studies that were being done in the scientific world had, quote, only quite recently become possible, this in the 1880s. So, of course, the pace of science has continued since this time, and now in the early 21st century, we are just buried in studies that are coming out. How are we ever going to appropriately be able to put all of these findings together, to add them up, to sift them out, and so on? I mean, to some extent, that is being done now. But I would suggest probably this is a major role for artificial intelligence, which would be able to parse data, collate studies much better than humans could do, because our ability to read and to write is extraordinarily slow, 
compared to an AI. So I think it's likely that we're living right now at the beginning of a potentially really explosive era for science, probably with discoveries that will just fundamentally change our concept of the universe and of matter and probably just everything. That is if we live that long. And one of the ways to live longer, not building an artificial general intelligence, which would be smarter than us and potentially, you know, be able to do things autonomously that would not be really in humanity's interest, even across class lines. But I was looking at something just recently, which was an AI assisted analysis of some particle physics stuff, basically what's on the inside of a proton. And um, AI was able to analyze like hundreds of thousands of different solutions. Whereas if humans had been working at human speed, you'd maybe be able to do like, you know, I mean, just a tiny, tiny fraction of that. And it was able to generate an answer with a fairly high degree of certainty um, within a few days, whereas this would have taken months or years for humans to do. So probably we're going to start collating using AI, lots of scientific information, and probably come up with some really amazing um, answers to questions that we've been asking for a while. And people have been doing this study or that study, but it hasn't necessarily added up. All right, back to the text. Secondly, Feuerbach is quite correct in asserting that exclusively natural scientific materialism is indeed, quote, the foundation of the edifice of human knowledge, but not the edifice itself. For we live not only in nature, but also in human society, and this also, no less than nature, has its history of development and its science. It was therefore a question of bringing the science of society, that is, the sum total of the so-called historical and philosophical sciences, into harmony with the materialist foundation and of reconstructing it thereupon. But it did not fall to Feuerbach's lot to do this. In spite of the foundation, he remained here bound by the traditional idealist fetters, a fact which he recognizes in these words, backwards I agree with the materialists, but not forwards. But it was Feuerbach himself who did not go forwards here, in the social domain, who did not get beyond his standpoint of 1840 or 1844. And this was again chiefly due to this reclusion, which compelled him, who of all philosophers, was the most inclined to social intercourse, to produce thoughts out of his solitary head, instead of in amicable and hostile encounters with other men of his caliber. Later we shall see in detail how much he remained an idealist in this sphere. It need only be added here that Starker looks for Feuerbach's idealism in the wrong place. Quote, Feuerbach is an idealist. He believes in the progress of mankind. And, quote, the foundation, the substructure of the whole, remains nevertheless idealism. Realism for us is nothing more than a protection against aberrations while we follow our ideal trends. Are not compassion, love, and enthusiasm for truth and justice ideal forces? Unquote. In the first place, Idealism here means nothing but the pursuit of ideal aims, but these necessarily have to do at the most with Kantian idealism and its categorical imperative. However, Kant himself called his philosophy transcendental idealism, by no means because he dealt therein also with ethical ideas, but for quite other reasons, as Starker will remember. The superstition that philosophical idealism is pivoted around a belief in ethical, that is, social ideals, arose outside philosophy among the German Philistines, who learned by heart from Schiller's poems the few morsels of philosophical culture they needed. 
No one has criticized more severely the impotent categorical imperative of Kant, impotent because it demands the impossible and therefore never attaining to any reality. No one has more cruelly derided the Philistine sentimental enthusiasm for unrealizable ideals pervaded by Schiller than precisely the complete idealist Hegel. See, for example, his Phenomenology. In the second place, we simply cannot get away from the fact that everything that sets men acting must find its way through their brains, even eating and drinking, which begins as a consequence of the sensation of hunger or thirst transmitted through the brain, and it ends as a result of the sensation of satisfaction likewise transmitted through the brain. The influences of the external world upon man express themselves in his brain, are reflected therein as feelings, impulses, volitions, in short, as ideal tendencies, and in this form become ideal powers. If, then, a man is to be deemed an idealist because he follows ideal tendencies and admits that ideal powers have an influence over him, then every person who is at all normally developed is a born idealist. And how, in that case, can there still be any materialists? In the third place, the conviction that humanity, at least at the present moment, moves on the whole in a progressive direction, has absolutely nothing to do with the antagonism between materialism and idealism. The French materialists, no less than the deists Voltaire and Rousseau, held this conviction to an almost fanatical degree, and often enough made the greatest personal sacrifices for it. If ever anybody dedicated his whole life to the enthusiasm for truth and justice, using this phrase in the good sense, it was Diderot, for instance, if, therefore, Starka declares all this to be idealism, this merely proves that the word materialism and the whole antagonism between the two trends has lost all meaning for him here. The fact is that Starka, although perhaps unconsciously, in this makes an unpardonable concession to the traditional Philistine prejudice against the word materialism, resulting from its long-continued defamation by the priests. By the word materialism, the Philistine understands gluttony, drunkenness, lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, arrogance, cupidity, avarice, covetousness, profit hunting, and stock exchange swindling. In short, all the filthy vices in which he himself indulges in private. By the word idealism, he understands the belief in virtue, universal philanthropy, and, in a general way, a better world, of which he boasts before others, but in which he himself at the utmost believes only so long as he's having the blues or is going through the bankruptcy consequent upon his customary materialist excesses. It is then that he sings his favorite song, What is Man? Half Beast, Half Angel. For the rest, Starke takes great pains to defend Feuerbach against the attacks and doctrines of the vociferous assistant professors who today go by the name of philosophers in Germany. For people who are interested in this afterbirth of classical German philosophy, this is, of course, a matter of importance. For Starke himself, it may have appeared necessary. We, however, will spare the reader this. Part 3. Feuerbach the real idealism of Feuerbach becomes evident as soon as we come to his philosophy of religion and ethics. He by no means wishes to abolish religion. He wants to perfect it. Philosophy itself must be absorbed in religion. Quote, the periods of humanity are distinguished only by religious changes. A historical movement is fundamental only when it is rooted in the hearts of men. The heart is not a form of religion so that the latter should exist also in the heart. The heart is the essence of religion, unquote. According to Feuerbach, religion is the relation between human beings based on the affections, 
the relation based on the heart, which relation until now has sought its truth in a fantastic mirror image of reality, in the mediation of one or many gods, the fantastic mirror images of human qualities, but now finds it directly and without any mediation in the love between I and thou. Thus, finally with Feuerbach, sex love becomes one of the highest forms, if not the highest form, of the practice of his new religion. Now relations between human beings, based on affection, and especially between the two sexes, have existed as long as mankind has. Sex love in particular has undergone a development and won a place during the last 800 years, which has made it a compulsory pivotal point of all poetry during this period. The existing positive religions have limited themselves to the bestowal of a higher consecration upon state-regulated sex love, that is, upon the marriage laws, and they could all disappear tomorrow without changing in the slightest the practice of love and friendship. Thus, the Christian religion in France, as a matter of fact, so completely disappeared in the year 1793-95 to that even Napoleon could not reintroduce it without opposition and difficulty, and this without any need for a substitute in Feuerbach's sense, making itself in the interval. Feuerbach's idealism consists here in this. He does not simply accept mutual relations based on reciprocal inclination between human beings, such as sex love, friendship, compassion, self-sacrifice, etc., as what they are in themselves, without associating them with any particular religion which to him, too, belongs to the past. But instead, he asserts that they will attain their full value only when consecrated by the name of religion. The chief thing for him is not that these purely human relations exist, but that they shall be conceived of as the new true religion. They are to have full value only after they have been marked with a religious stamp. Religion is derived from religare, to bind, and meant originally a bond. Therefore, every bond between two people is a religion. Such etymological tricks are the last resort of idealist philosophy. Not what the word means according to the historical development of its actual use, but what it ought to mean according to its derivation is what counts. And so sex love, and the intercourse between the sexes, is apotheosized to a religion, merely in order that the word religion, which is so dear to idealistic memories, may not disappear from the language. The Parisian reformers of the Louis Blanc trend used to speak in precisely the same way in the 40s. They likewise could conceive of a man without religion only as a monster, and used to say to us, well then, atheism is your religion. Comment, plenty of people, religious people in the United States still think this way today. Continuing, if Feuerbach wishes to establish a true religion upon the basis of an essentially materialist conception of nature, that is the same as regarding modern chemistry as true alchemy. If religion can exist without its god, alchemy can exist without its philosopher's stone. By the way, there exists a very close connection between alchemy and religion. The philosopher's stone has many godlike properties, and the Egyptian Greek alchemists of the first two centuries of our era had a hand in the development of Christian doctrines, as the data given by Kopp and Berthollet have proved. Feuerbach's assertion that, quote, the periods of humanity are distinguished only by religious changes is decidedly false. Great historical turning points have been accompanied by religious changes only so far as the three world religions which have existed up to the present, Buddhism, Christianity, and Islam, are concerned. The old tribal and national religions, which arose spontaneously, did not proselytize and lost all their power of resistance as soon as the independence of the tribe or people was lost. 
For the Germans, it was sufficient to have simple contact with the decaying Roman world empire and with its newly adopted Christian world religion, which fitted its economic, political, and ideological conditions. Only with these world religions, arisen more or less artificially, particularly Christianity and Islam, do we find that the more general historical movements acquire a religious imprint. Even in regard to Christianity, the religious stamp in revolutions of really universal significance is restricted to the first stages of the bourgeoisie struggle for emancipation from the 13th to the 17th century and is to be accounted for not as Feuerbach thinks by the hearts of men and their religious needs, but by the entire previous history of the Middle Ages, which knew no other form of ideology than religion and theology. But when the bourgeoisie of the 18th century was strengthened enough likewise to possess an ideology of its own, suited to its own class standpoint, it made its great and conclusive revolution, the French, appealing exclusively to juristic and political ideas, and troubling itself with religion only insofar as it stood in its way. But it never occurred to it to put a new religion in place of the old. Everyone knows how Robespierre failed in his attempt to set up a religion of the, quote, highest being. The possibility of purely human sentiments in our intercourse with other human beings has nowadays been sufficiently curtailed by the society in which we must live which is based upon class antagonism and class rule. We have no reason to curtail it still more by exalting these sentiments to a religion. And similarly, the understanding of the great historical class struggles has already been sufficiently obscured by current historiography, particularly in Germany, so that there is also no need for us to make such an understanding totally possible by transforming the history of these struggles into a mere appendix of ecclesiastical history. Already here, it becomes evident how far today we have moved beyond Feuerbach. His finest passages and glorification of his new religion of love are totally unreadable today. The only religion which Feuerbach examines seriously is Christianity, the world religion of the Occident, based upon monotheism. He proves that the Christian God is only a fantastic reflection, a mirror image of man. Now this God is, however, himself the product of a tedious process of abstraction, the concentrated quintessence of the numerous, earlier, tribal and national gods. And man, whose image this god is, is therefore also not a real man, but likewise the quintessence of the numerous real men, man in the abstract, therefore himself again a mental image. Feuerbach, who on every page preaches sensuousness, absorption in the concrete, in actuality, becomes thoroughly abstract as soon as he begins to talk of any other than mere sex relations between human beings. Of these relations, only one aspect appeals to him, morality. And here we're again struck by Feuerbach's astonishing poverty when compared to Hegel. The latter's ethics, or doctrine of moral conduct, is the philosophy of right, and it embraces one, abstract right, two, morality, three, social ethics, under which are comprised the family, civil society, and the state. Here the content is as realistic as the form is idealistic. Besides morality, the whole sphere of law, economy, politics is here included. With Feuerbach, it's just the reverse. In the form, he's realistic since he takes his start from man, but there's absolutely no mention of the world in which this man lives. Hence, this man always remains the same abstract man who occupied the field in the philosophy of religion. For this man is not born of woman. He issues, as from a chrysalis, from the god of monotheistic religions. He therefore does not live in a real world historically come into being and historically determined. 
True, he has intercourse with other men. However, each one of them is just as much an abstraction as he is himself. In his philosophy of religion, we still had men and women. But in his ethics, even this last distinction disappears. Feuerbach, to be sure, at long intervals makes such statements as, man thinks differently in a palace and in a hut. Or, if because of hunger, of misery, you have no stuff in your body, you likewise have no stuff for morality in your head, in your mind or heart. Or, politics must become our religion, etc. But Feuerbach is absolutely incapable of achieving anything with these maxims. They remain mere phrases, and even Starka has to admit that for Feuerbach, politics constituted an impassable frontier, and the, quote, science of society, sociology, was terra incognita to him. He appears just as shallow in comparison with Hegel in his treatment of the antithesis of good and evil. Quote, one believes one is saying something great, Hegel remarks, if one says, man is naturally good. But one forgets that one says something far greater when one says, man is naturally evil. With Hegel, evil is the form in which the motive force of historical development presents itself. This contains the twofold meaning that on the one hand, each new advance necessarily appears as a sacrilege against things hallowed, as a rebellion against condition, though old and moribund, yet sanctified by custom, and that on the other hand, it is precisely the wicked passions of man, greed and lust for power, which, since the emergence of class antagonisms, serve as levers of historical development, a fact of which the history of feudalism and the bourgeoisie, for example, constitutes a single, continual proof. But it does not occur to Feuerbach to investigate the historical role of moral evil. To him, history is altogether an uncanny domain in which he feels ill at ease. Even his dictum, man as he sprang originally from nature, was only a mere creature of nature, not a man. Man is a product of man, of culture, of history. With him, even this dictum remains absolutely sterile. What Feuerbach has to tell us about morals can therefore only be extremely meager. The urge toward happiness is innate in man, and must therefore form the basis of all morality. But the urge toward happiness is subject to a double correction, first by the natural consequences of our actions. After the debauch comes the blues, and habitual excess is followed by illness. Secondly, by its social consequences. If we do not respect the similar urge of other people toward happiness, they will defend themselves and so interfere with our own urge toward happiness. Consequently, in order to satisfy our urge, we must be in a position to appreciate rightly the results of our conduct and must likewise allow others an equal right to seek happiness. Rational self-restraint with regard to ourselves and love, again and again love, in our intercourse with others, these are the basic laws of Feuerbach's morality. From them, all others are derived. And neither the most spirited utterances of Feuerbach, nor the strongest eulogies of Starke, can hide the tenuity and banality of these few propositions. Only very exceptionally, and by no means to this and other people's profit, can an individual satisfy his urge towards happiness by preoccupation with himself. Rather, it requires preoccupation with the outside world, with means to satisfy his needs, that is to say, food, other people, books, conversation, argument, activities, objects for use and working up. Feuerbach's morality either presupposes that these means and objects of satisfaction are given to every individual as a matter of course, comment, what was the Jordan Peterson thing about compulsory girlfriends or something like that, continuing, or else it offers only inapplicable good advice and is therefore not worth a brass farthing to people who are without these means. 
and Feuerbach himself states this in plain terms, quote, Man thinks differently in a palace and in a hut. If because of hunger, of misery, you have no stuff in your body, you likewise have no stuff for morality in your head, in your mind or heart, unquote. Do matters fare any better in regard to the equal right of others to satisfy their urge toward happiness? Feuerbach posed this claim as absolute, as holding good for all times and circumstances. But since when has it been valid? Was there ever in antiquity between slaves and masters, or in the Middle Ages between serfs and barons, any talk about an equal right to the urge toward happiness? Was not the urge toward happiness of the oppressed class sacrificed ruthlessly and, quote, by the right of law to that of the ruling class? Yes, that was indeed immoral. Nowadays, however, equality of rights is recognized. Recognized in words ever since, and inasmuch as the bourgeoisie, in its fight against feudalism and in the development of capitalist production, was compelled to abolish all privileges of a state, that is, personal privileges, and to introduce the equality of all individuals before law, first in the sphere in private law, then gradually also in the sphere of public law. But the urge toward happiness thrives only to a trivial extent on ideal rights. To the greatest extent of all, it thrives on material means, and capitalist production takes care to ensure that the great majority of those equal rights shall get only what is essential for bare existence. Capitalist production has therefore little more respect if indeed any more, for the equal right to the urge toward happiness of the majority than had slavery or serfdom. And are we better off in regard to the mental means of happiness, the educational means? Is not even the schoolmaster of Sadova a mythical person? Footnote, schoolmaster of Sadova was an expression then used by German bourgeois publicists after the victory of the Prussians at Sadova in the Austro-Prussian War of 1866, the implications being that the Prussian victory was to be attributed to the superiority of the Prussian system of public education. Back to the text. More. According to Feuerbach's theory of morals, the stock exchange is the highest temple of moral conduct, provided only that one speculates right. If my urge toward happiness leads me to the stock exchange, and if there I correctly gauge the consequences of my actions so that only agreeable results and no disadvantages ensue, that is, I always win, then I am fulfilling Feuerbach's precept. Moreover, I do not thereby interfere with the equal right of another person to pursue his happiness, for that other man went to the exchange just as voluntarily as I did and in concluding the speculative transaction with me, he has followed his urge toward happiness, as I have followed mine. If he loses his money, his action is ipso facto proved to have been unethical because of his bad reckoning, and since I have given him the punishment he deserves, I can even slap my chest proudly, like a modern Radamanthus. Love, too, rules on the stock exchange insofar as it is not simply a sentimental figure of speech, for each finds in others the satisfaction of his own urge toward happiness, which is just what love ought to achieve and how it acts in practice. And if I gamble with correct prevision of the consequences of my operations, and therefore with success, I fulfill all the strictest injunctions of Feuerbachian morality and become a rich man into the bargain. In other words, Feuerbach's morality is cut exactly to the pattern of modern capitalist society. Little as Feuerbach himself might desire or imagine it. But love, yes, with Feuerbach, love is everywhere, and at all times the wonder-working God who should help to surmount all difficulties of practical life. And at that, in a society which is split into classes with diametrically opposite interests. At this point, 
the last relic of the revolutionary character disappears from his philosophy, leaving only the old can't love one another, fall into each other's arms regardless of distinctions of sex or estate, a universal orgy of reconciliation. In short, the Feuerbachian theory of morals fares like all its predecessors. It is designed to suit all periods, all peoples, and all conditions, and precisely for that reason it is never and nowhere applicable. It remains, as regards the real world, as powerless as Kant's categorical imperative. In reality, every class, even every profession, has its own morality, and even this it violates whenever it can do so with impunity. And love, which is to unite all, manifests itself in wars, altercations, lawsuits, domestic broils, divorces, and every possible exploitation of one by another. Now, how was it possible that the powerful impetus given by Feuerbach turned out to be so unfruitful for himself, for the simple reason that Feuerbach himself never contrives to escape from the realm of abstraction, for which he has a deadly hatred into that of living reality. He clings fiercely to nature and man, but nature and man remain mere words with him. He is incapable of telling us anything definite either about real nature or real men. But from the abstract man of Feuerbach, one arrives at real living men only when one considers them as participants in history. And that is what Feuerbach resisted, and therefore the year 1848, which he did not understand, meant to him merely the final break with the real world, retirement into solitude. The blame for this again falls chiefly on the conditions then obtaining in Germany, which condemned him to rot away miserably. But the step which Feuerbach did not take nevertheless had to be taken. The cult of abstract man, which formed the kernel of Feuerbach's new religion, had to be replaced by the science of real men and of their historical development. This further development of Feuerbach's standpoint beyond Feuerbach was inaugurated by Marx in 1848 in The Holy Family. Part 4. Marx. Strauss, Bauer, Stirner, Feuerbach, these were the offshoots of Hegelian philosophy, insofar as they did not abandon the field of philosophy. Strauss, after his Life of Jesus and Dogmatics, produced only literary studies in philosophy and ecclesiastical history after the fashion of Renan. Bauer only achieved something in the field of the history of the origin of Christianity, though what he did here was important. Stirner remained a curiosity, even after Bakunin blended him with Proudhon and labeled the blend anarchism. Feuerbach alone was of significance as a philosopher. But not only did philosophy claim to soar above all special sciences and to be the science of sciences connecting them, remain to him an impassable barrier, an inviolable holy thing. But as a philosopher, too, he stopped half incapable of disposing of Hegel through criticism. He simply threw him aside as useless, while he himself, compared with the encyclopedic wealth of the Hegelian system, achieved nothing positive beyond a turgid religion of love and a meager, impotent morality. Out of the dissolution of the Hegelian school, however, there developed still another tendency, the only one which has borne real fruit, and this tendency is essentially connected with the name of Marx. Footnote by Engels, here I may be permitted to make a personal explanation. Lately, repeated reference has been made to my share in this theory, and so I can hardly avoid saying a few words here to settle this point. I cannot deny that both before and during my 40 years collaboration with Marx, I had a certain independent share in laying the foundation of the theory, and more particularly in its elaboration. 
but the greater part of its leading basic principles, especially in the realm of economics and history, and above all, their final trenchant formulation, belonged to Marx. What I contributed, at any rate, with the exception of my work in a few special fields, Marx could very well have done without me. What Marx accomplished, I would not have achieved. Marx stood higher, saw further, and took a wider and quicker view than all the rest of us. Marx was a genius. We others were at best talented. Without him, the theory would not be by far what it is today. It therefore rightly bears his name. Back to the text. The separation from Hegelian philosophy was here also the result of return to the materialist standpoint. That means it was resolved to comprehend the real world, nature and history, just as it presents itself to everyone who approaches it, free from preconceived idealist crochets. It was decided mercilessly to sacrifice every idealist fancy, which could not be brought into harmony with the facts conceived in their own, and not in a fantastic interconnection. And materialism means nothing more than this, but here, the materialistic world outlook was taken really seriously for the first time, and was carried through consistently, at least in its basic features, in all domains of knowledge concerned. Hegel was not simply put aside. On the contrary, a start was made from his revolutionary side, described above, from the dialectical method. But in its Hegelian form, this method was unusable. According to Hegel, dialectics is the self-development of the concept. The absolute concept does not only exist, unknown where, from eternity, it is also the actual living soul of the whole existing world. It develops into itself through all the preliminary stages which are treated at length in the logic and which are all included in it. Then it alienates itself by changing into nature. Comment kind of sounds like the... Um, the fall in Christianity, anyway, continuing, where unconscious of itself, disguised as a natural necessity, it goes through a new development and finally returns as man's consciousness of himself. This self-consciousness then elaborates itself again in history in the crude form, until finally the absolute concept again comes to itself completely in the Hegelian philosophy. According to Hegel, therefore, the dialectical development apparent in nature and history, that is, the causal interconnection of the progressive movement from the lower to the higher, which asserts itself through all zigzag movements and temporary retrogression, is only a copy of the self-movement of the concept going on from eternity, no one knows where, but at all events independently of any thinking human brain. This ideological perversion had to be done away with. We again took a materialistic view of the thoughts in our heads, regarding them as images of real things, instead of regarding real things as images of this or that stage of the absolute concept. Thus dialectics reduced itself to the science of the general laws of motion, both of the external world and of human thought, two sets of laws which are identical in substance, but differ in their expression insofar as the human mind can apply them consciously while in nature, and also up to now for the most part in human history, these laws assert themselves unconsciously, in the form of external necessity, in the midst of an endless series of seeming accidents. Thereby, the dialectic of concepts itself became merely the conscious reflex of the dialectical motion of the real world, and thus the dialectic of Hegel was turned over, or rather, turned off its head, on which it was standing, and placed upon its feet. Comment, remember, earlier... Engels had described Hegel's dialectics as basically materialist in essence, but turned upside down so as to be treated as idealism and interpreted through that lens.
Here, basically, he's saying that what Marx and Engels did was turn it right side up and basically drop all of this idealism presentation and just go deeply into the materialism which was suggested by it, continuing. And this materialist dialectic, which for years has been our best working tool and our sharpest weapon, was remarkably enough discovered not only by us, but also independently of us, and even of Hegel by a German worker, Joseph Dietzken. Footnote here, see, The Nature of Human Brain Work, described by a manual worker, published in Hamburg. Back to the text. In this way, however, the revolutionary side of Hegelian philosophy was again taken up, and at the same time freed from the idealist trimmings with which Hegel had prevented its consistent execution. The great basic thought that the world is not to be comprehended as a complex of ready-made things, but as a complex of processes, in which the things apparently stable, no less than their mind images in our heads, the concepts, go through an uninterrupted change of coming into being and passing away, in which, in spite of all seeming accidentally and of all temporary retrogression, a progressive development asserts itself in the end. This great fundamental thought has, especially since the time of Hegel, so thoroughly permeated ordinary consciousness that in this generality it is now scarcely ever contradicted. But to acknowledge this fundamental thought in words and to apply it in reality in detail to each domain of investigation are two different things. If, however, investigation always proceeds from this standpoint, the demand for final solutions and eternal truths ceases once and for all. One is always conscious of the necessary limitation of all acquired knowledge, of the fact that it's conditioned by the circumstances in which it was acquired. On the other hand, one no longer permits oneself to be imposed upon by the antithesis, insuperable for the still common old metaphysics, between true and false, good and bad, identical and different, necessary and accidental. One knows that these antitheses have only a relative validity, that that which is recognized now as true has also its latent false side which will later manifest itself, just as that which is now regarded as false has also its true side by virtue of which it could previously be regarded as true. One knows that what is maintained to be necessary is composed of sheer accidents, and that the so-called accidental is the form behind which necessity hides itself, and so on. The old method of investigation and thought, which Hegel calls metaphysical, which preferred to investigate things as given, as fixed and stable, a method the relics of which still strongly haunt people's minds, had a great deal of historical justification in its day. It was necessary first to examine things before it was possible to examine processes. One had first to know what a particular thing was before one could observe the changes it was undergoing. And such was the case with natural science. The old metaphysics, which accepted things as finished objects, arose from a natural science which investigated dead and living things as finished objects. But when this investigation had progressed so far that it became impossible to take the decisive step forward, that is, to pass on the systemic investigation of the changes which these things undergo in nature itself, then the last hour of the old metaphysics struck in the realm of philosophy also. And in fact, while natural science up to the end of the last century was predominantly a collecting science, a science of finished things, in our century it is essentially a systematizing science, a science of the processes, of the origin and development of these things, and of the interconnection which binds all these natural processes into one great whole. 
physiology, which investigates the processes occurring in plant and animal organisms, embryology, which deals with the development of individual organisms from germs to maturity, geology, which investigates the gradual formation of the Earth's surface. All these are the offspring of our century. But above all, there are three discoveries which have enabled our knowledge of the interconnection of natural processes to advance by leaps and bounds. First, the discovery of the cell as the unit from whose multiplication and differentiation the whole plant and animal body develops. Not only is the development and growth of all higher organisms recognized to proceed according to a single general law, but the capacity of the cell to change indicates the way by which organisms can change their species and thus go through more than individual development. Second, the transformation of energy, which has demonstrated to us that all the so-called forces operative in the first instance in inorganic nature, mechanical force and its complement, so-called potential energy, heat, radiation, light or radiant heat, electricity, magnetism, and chemical energy, are different forms of manifestation of universal motion, which pass into one another in definite proportions, so that in place of a certain quantity of the one which disappears, a certain quantity of another makes its appearance, and thus the whole motion of nature is reduced to this incessant process of transformation from one form into another. Finally, the proof which Darwin first developed in connected form that the stock of organic products of nature environing us today, including man, is the result of a long process of evolution from a few originally unicellular germs, and that these again have arisen from protoplasm or albumin, which came into existence by chemical means. Thanks to these three great discoveries and the other immense advances in natural science, we have now arrived at the point where we can demonstrate the interconnection between the processes in nature, not only in particular spheres, but also the interconnection of these particular spheres on the whole, and so can represent in an approximately systematic form a comprehensive view of the interconnection in nature by means of the facts provided by an empirical science itself. To furnish this comprehensive view was formerly the task of so-called natural philosophy. It could do this only by putting in place of the real, but as yet unknown interconnections, ideal, fancied ones, filling in the missing facts by figments of the mind, and bridging the actual gaps merely in imagination. In the course of this procedure, it conceived many brilliant ideas, and foreshadowed many later discoveries, but it also produced a considerable amount of nonsense, which indeed could not have been otherwise. Today, when one needs to comprehend the results of natural scientific investigation only dialectically, that is, in the sense of their own interconnection, in order to arrive at a system of nature sufficient for our time, when the dialectical character of this interconnection is forcing itself against their will even into the metaphysically trained minds of the natural scientists, today natural philosophy is finally disposed of. Every attempt at resurrecting it would not only be superfluous, but a step backwards. But what is true of nature, which is hereby recognized also as a historical process of development, is likewise true of the history of society in all its branches, and of the totality of all sciences which occupy themselves with things human and divine. Here too, the philosophy of history, of right, of religion, etc., has consisted in the substitution of an interconnection fabricated in the mind of the philosopher for the real interconnection to be demonstrated in the events has consisted in the comprehension of history as a whole, as well as in its separate parts, as the gradual realization of ideas, and naturally always only the pet ideas of the philosopher himself.
According to this, history worked unconsciously but of necessity toward a certain ideal goal set in advance, as, for example, Hegel towards the realization of his absolute idea, and the unalterable trend toward this absolute idea formed the inner interconnection in the events of history, a new mysterious providence, unconscious or gradually coming into consciousness, was thus put in the place of the real, still unknown, interconnection. Here, therefore, just as in the realm of nature, it was necessary to do away with these fabricated, artificial interconnections by the discovery of the real ones, a task which ultimately amounts to the discovery of the general laws of motion, which assert themselves as the ruling ones in the history of human society. In one point, however, the history of the development of society proves to be essentially different from that of nature. In nature, insofar as we ignore man's reaction upon nature, there are only blind, unconscious agencies acting upon one another, out of whose interplay the general law comes into operation. Nothing of all that happens, whether in the innumerable apparent accidents observable upon the surface, or in the ultimate results which confirm the regularity inherent in these accidents, happens as a consciously desired aim. In the history of society, on the contrary, the actors are all endowed with consciousness, are men acting with deliberation or passion, working towards definite goals. Nothing happens without a conscious purpose, without an intended aim. But this distinction, important as it is for historical investigation, particularly of single epochs and events, cannot alter the fact that the course of history is governed by inner general laws. For here also, on the whole, in spite of the consciously desired aims of all individuals, accident apparently reigns on the surface. That which is willed happens, but rarely. In the majority of instances, the numerous desired ends cross and conflict with one another, or these ends themselves are from the outset incapable of realization, or the means of attaining them are insufficient. Thus the conflicts of innumerable individual wills and individual actions in the domain of history produce a state of affairs entirely analogous to that prevailing in the realm of unconscious nature. The ends of the actions are intended, but the results which actually follow from these actions are not intended, or when they do seem to correspond to the end intended, they ultimately have consequences quite other than those intended. I mean, in other words, unintended consequences. Historical events thus appear on the whole to be likewise governed by chance, but where on the surface accident holds sway, there actually it is always governed by inner, hidden laws, and it's only a matter of discovering these laws. Men make their own history, whatever its outcome may be, and that each person follows his own consciously desired end. And it's precisely the resultant of these many wills operating in different directions, and of their manifold effects upon the outer world, that constitutes history. Thus it is also a question of what the many individuals desire. The will is determined by passion or deliberation. But the levers which immediately determine passion or deliberation are of very different kinds. Partly they may be external objects, partly ideal motives, ambition, enthusiasm for truth and justice personal hatred, or even purely individual whims of all kinds. But on the one hand, we have seen that the many individual wills active in history, for the most part, produce results quite other than those intended, often quite the opposite. That their motives, therefore, in relation to the total result, are likewise of only secondary importance. On the other hand, the further question arises, what driving forces in turn stand behind these motives? What are the historical forces which transform themselves into these motives in the brains of the actors? The old materialism never put this question to itself. Its conception of history, insofar as it has one at all, is therefore essentially pragmatic. 
It divides men who act in history into noble and ignoble, and then finds that as a rule, the noble are defrauded and the ignoble are victorious. Hence, it follows for the old materialism that nothing very edifying is to be had from the study of history. And for us, that in the realm of history, the old materialism becomes untrue to itself, because it takes the ideal driving forces which operate there as ultimate causes, instead of investigating what's behind them. What are the driving forces of these driving forces? This inconsistency does not lie in the fact that ideal driving forces are recognized, but in the investigation not being carried further back behind these into their motive causes. On the other hand, the philosophy of history, particularly as represented by Hegel, recognizes that the ostensible and also the really operating motives of men who act in history are by no means the ultimate causes of historical events, that behind these motives are other motive powers which have to be discovered. But it does not seek these powers in history itself. It imports them rather from outside, from philosophical ideology into history. Hegel, for example, instead of explaining the history of ancient Greece out of its own inner interconnections, simply maintains that it's nothing more than the working out of, quote, forms of beautiful individuality, the realization of a work of art as such. He says much in this connection about the old Greeks that's fine and profound, but that does not prevent us today from refusing to be put off with such an explanation, which is a mere manner of speech. When, therefore, it is a question of investigating the driving powers which, consciously or unconsciously, and indeed very often unconsciously, lie behind the motives of men who act in history and which constitute the real ultimate driving forces of history, then it's not so much a question of the motives of single individuals, however eminent, as of those motives which set in motion great masses, whole people, and again whole classes of the people in each people. And this, too, not merely for an instant, like the transient flaring up of a straw fire which quickly dies down, but as a lasting action resulting in a great historical transformation. To ascertain the driving causes which here, in the minds of acting masses and their leaders, to so-called great men, are reflected as conscious motives, clearly or unclearly, directly or in an ideological, even glorified form, is the only path which can put us on the track of the laws holding sway, both in history as a whole, and at particular periods and in particular lands. Everything which sets men in motion must go through their minds, but what form it will take in the mind will depend very much upon the circumstances. The workers have by no means become reconciled to capitalist machine industry, even though they no longer simply break the machines to pieces, as they still did in 1848 on the Rhine. But while in all earlier periods the investigation of these driving causes of history was almost impossible on account of the complicated and concealed interconnections between them and their effects, our present period has so far simplified these interconnections that the riddle could be solved. Since the establishment of large-scale industry, that is, at least since the European peace of 1815, it has been no longer a secret to any man in England that the whole political struggle there pivoted on the claims to supremacy of two classes, the landed aristocracy and the bourgeoisie or middle class. In France, with the return of the Bourbons, the same fact was perceived, the historians of the Restoration period, from Thierry to Guizot, Minier and Thiers, speak of it everywhere as the key to the understanding of all French history since the Middle Ages. And since 1830, the working class, the proletariat, has been recognized in both countries as a third competitor for power. 
Conditions had become so simplified that one would have had to close one's eyes deliberately not to see in the light of these three great classes and in the conflict of their interests the driving force of modern history, at least in the two most advanced countries. But how did these classes come into existence? If it was possible at first glance still to ascribe the origin of the great, formerly feudal, landed property, at least in the first instance, to political causes, to taking possession by force, this could not be done in regard to the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Here, the origin and development of two great classes was seen to lie clearly and palpably in purely economic causes, and it was just as clear that in the struggle between landed property and the bourgeoisie, no less than in the struggle between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, it was a question, first and foremost, of economic interests, to the furtherance of which political power was intended to serve merely as a means. Bourgeoisie and proletariat both arose in consequences of a transformation of the economic conditions, more precisely of the mode of production. The transition, first from guild handicrafts to manufacture, and then from manufacture to large-scale industry with steam and mechanical power, had caused the development of these two classes. At a certain stage, the new productive forces set in motion by the bourgeoisie, in the first place the division of labor and the combination of many detail laborers in one general manufactory, and the conditions and requirements of exchange developed through these productive forces, became incompatible with the existing order of production handed down by history and sanctified by law, that is to say, incompatible with the privileges of the guild and the numerous other personal and local privileges, which were only so many fetters to the unprivileged estates of the feudal order to society. The productive forces represented by the bourgeoisie rebelled against the order of production represented by the feudal landlords and the guildmasters. The result is known. The feudal fetters were smashed, gradually in England, at one blow in France. In Germany, the process is not yet finished. But just as, at a definite stage of its development, manufacture came into conflict with the feudal order of production, so now, large-scale industry has already come into conflict with the bourgeois order of production established in its place. Tied down by this order, by the narrow limits of the capitalist mode of production, this industry produces, on the one hand, an ever-increasing proletarianization of the great mass of the people, and, on the other hand, an ever-greater mass of unsaleable products, overproduction and mass misery, each the cause of the other. That is the absurd contradiction which is its outcome, and which of necessity calls for the liberation of the productive forces by means of a change in the mode of production. In modern history, at least, it is therefore proved that all political struggles are class struggles, and all class struggles for emancipation, despite their necessarily political form, for every class struggle is a political struggle, turn ultimately on the question of economic emancipation. Therefore, here at least, the state, the political order, is the subordination, and civil society, the realm of economic relations, the decisive element. The traditional conception, to which Hegel too pays homage, saw in the state the determining element, and in civil society the element determined by it. Appearances correspond to this, as all the driving forces of the actions of any individual person must pass through his brain, and transform themselves into motives of his will, in order to set him into action, so also all the needs of civil society, no matter which class happens to be the ruling one, must pass through the will of the state in order to secure general validity in the form of laws. That is the formal aspect of the matter, the one which is self-evident. The question arises, however, 
What is the content of this merely formal will of the individual as well as of the state? And whence is this content derived? Why is just this willed and not something else? If we inquire into this, we discover that in modern history the will of the state is, on the whole, determined by the changing needs of civil society, but the supremacy of this or that class, in the last resort, by the development of the productive forces and relations of exchange. But if even in our modern era, with its gigantic means of production and communication, the state is not an independent domain with an independent development, but one whose existence as well as development is to be explained in the last resort by the economic conditions of the life of society, then this must be still more true of all earlier times when the production of the material life of man was not yet carried on with these abundant auxiliary means, and when, therefore, the necessity of such production must have exercised a still greater mastery over men. If the state, even today, in the era of big industry and of railways, is on the whole only a reflection, in concentrated form, of the economic needs of the class controlling production, then this must have been much more so in an epoch when each generation of men was forced to spend a far greater part of its aggregate lifetime in satisfying material needs, and was therefore much more dependent on them than we are today. An examination of the history of earlier periods, as soon as it is seriously undertaken from this angle, most abundantly confirms this, but of course this cannot be gone into here. If the state and public law are determined by economic relations, so too of course is private law, which indeed in essence only sanctions the existing economic relations between individuals which are normal in the given circumstances. The form in which this happens can, however, vary considerably. It is possible, as happened in England, in harmony with the whole national development, to retain in the main the forms of the old feudal laws while giving them a bourgeois content, in fact, directly reading a bourgeois meaning into the feudal name. But also, as happened in Western continental Europe, Roman law, the first world law of a commodity-producing society, with its unsurpassably fine elaboration of all the essential legal relations of simple commodity owners, of buyers and sellers, debtors and creditors, contracts, obligations, etc., can be taken as the foundation. In which case, for the benefit of a still petty bourgeois and semi-feudal society, it can either be reduced to the level of such a society simply through judicial practice, common law, or, with the help of allegedly enlightened, moralizing jurists, it can be worked into a special code of law to correspond with such a social level a code which in these circumstances will be a bad one also from the legal standpoint, for instance, Prussian Landrecht. But after a great bourgeois revolution, it is, however, also possible for such a classic law code of bourgeois society as the French Code Civile to be worked out upon the basis of the same Roman law. If, therefore, bourgeois legal rules merely express the economic life conditions of society in legal form, then they can do so well or ill according to circumstances. The state presents itself to us as the first ideological power over man. Society creates for itself an organ for the safeguarding of its common interests against internal and external attacks. This organ is the state power. Hardly come into being, this organ makes itself independent vis-a-vis -vis society. And indeed, the more so, the more it becomes the organ of a particular class, the more it directly enforces the supremacy of that class. The fight of the oppressed class against the ruling class becomes necessarily a political fight, a fight, first of all, against the political dominance of this class. The consciousness of the interconnection between this political struggle and its economic basis becomes dulled and can be lost altogether. 
While this is not wholly the case with the participants, it almost always happens with the historians. Of the ancient sources on the struggles within the Roman Republic, only Appian tells us clearly and distinctly what was at issue in the last resort, namely landed property. But once the state has become an independent power vis-a-vis -vis society, it produces forthwith a further ideology. It is indeed among professional politicians, theorists of public law, and jurists of private law that the connection with economic facts gets lost for fair, since in each particular case the economic facts must assume the form of juristic motives in order to receive legal sanction, and since, in so doing, consideration of course has to be given to the whole legal system already in operation, the juristic form is in consequence made everything, and the economic content nothing. Public law and private law are treated as independent spheres, each being capable of and needing a systematic presentation by the consistent elimination of all inner contradictions. Still higher ideologies, that is, such as are still further removed from the material economic basis, take the form of philosophy and religion. Here, the interconnection between conceptions and their material conditions of existence becomes more and more complicated, more and more obscured by intermediate links. Comment might also say mystified. But the interconnection exists, just as the whole Renaissance period from the middle of the 15th century was an essential product of the towns and therefore of the burghers, so also was the subsequently newly awakened philosophy. Its content was in essence only the philosophical expression of the thoughts corresponding to the development of the small and middle burghers into a big bourgeoisie. Among last century's Englishmen and Frenchmen, who in many cases were just as much political economists as they were philosophers, this is clearly evident, and we have proved it above in regard to the Hegelian school. We will now, in addition, deal only briefly with religion, since the latter stands further away from material life and seems to be most alien to it. Religion arose in very primitive times from erroneous, primitive conceptions of men about their own nature and external nature surrounding them. Every ideology, however, once it has arisen, develops in connection with the given concept material, and develops this material further, otherwise it would not be an ideology, that is, occupation with thoughts as with independent entities, developing independently and subject only to their own laws. In the last analysis, the material life conditions of the persons inside whose heads this thought process goes on determine the course of the process which of necessity remains unknown to these persons, for otherwise there would be an end to all ideology. These original religious notions, therefore, which in the main are common to each group of kindred peoples, develop, after the group separates, in a manner peculiar to each people, according to the conditions of life falling to their lot. For a number of groups of peoples, and particularly for the Aryans, the so-called Indo-Europeans, this process has been shown in detail by comparative mythology. The gods thus fashioned within each people were national gods, whose domain extended no farther than the national territory which they were to protect. On the other side of its boundaries, other gods held undisputed sway. They could continue to exist in imagination only as long as the nation existed. They fell with its fall. The Roman world empire, the economic conditions of whose origin we do not need to examine here, brought about this downfall of the old nationalities. The old national gods decayed, even those of the Romans, which also were patterned to suit only the narrow confines of the city of Rome. 
The need to complement the world empire by means of a world religion was clearly revealed in the attempts made to recognize all foreign gods that were the least bit respectable and provide altars for them in Rome alongside the native gods. But a new world religion is not to be made in this fashion by imperial decree. The new world religion, Christianity, had already quietly come into being out of a mixture of generalized oriental, particularly Jewish, theology and vulgarized Greek, particularly Stoic, philosophy. What it originally looked like has to be first laboriously discovered, since its official form, as it has been handed down to us, is merely that in which it became the state religion to which purpose it was adapted by the Council of Nicaea. The fact that already after 250 years it became the state religion suffices to show that it was the religion in correspondence with the conditions of the time. In the Middle Ages, in the same measure as feudalism developed, Christianity grew into the religious counterpart to it with a corresponding feudal hierarchy. And when the burghers began to thrive, there developed, in opposition to feudal Catholicism, the Protestant heresy, which first appeared in southern France among the Albigenses at the time that the cities there reached the highest point of their fluorescence. Footnote there, the Albigenses were a religious sect which, during the 12th and 13th centuries, directed a movement against the Roman Catholic Church. The name is derived from the town of Albi in the south of France. Back to the text. The Middle Ages had attached to theology all the other forms of ideology, philosophy, politics, jurisprudence, and made them subdivisions of theology. It thereby constrained every social and political movement to take on a theological form. The sentiments of the masses were fed with religion to the exclusion of all else. It was therefore necessary to put forward their own interests in a religious guise in order to produce a great tempest. And just as the burghers from the beginning brought into being an appendage of propertyless urban plebeians, day laborers and servants of all kinds, belonging to no recognized social estate, precursors of the later proletariat, so likewise heresy soon became divided into a burger moderate heresy and a plebeian revolutionary one, the latter an abomination to the burger heretics themselves. The ineradicability of the Protestant heresy corresponded to the invincibility of the rising burghers. When these burghers had become sufficiently strengthened, their struggle against the feudal nobility, which till then had been predominantly local, began to assume national dimensions. The first great action occurred in Germany, the so-called Reformation. The burghers were neither powerful enough nor sufficiently developed to be able to unite under their banner the remaining rebellious estates, the plebeians of the towns, the lower nobility, and the peasants on the land. At first, the nobles were defeated. The peasants rose in a revolt which formed the peak of the whole revolutionary struggle. The cities left them in the lurch, and thus the revolution succumbed to the armies of the secular princes who reaped the whole profit. Thenceforward, Germany disappears for three centuries from the ranks of countries, playing an independent, active part in history. But, beside the German Luther appeared the Frenchman Calvin. With true French acuity, he put the bourgeois character of the Reformation in the forefront, republicanized and democratized the church. While the Lutheran Reformation in Germany degenerated and reduced the country to rack and ruin, the Calvinist Reformation served as a banner for the Republicans in Geneva, in Holland, and in Scotland, freed Holland from Spain and from the German Empire, and provided the ideological costume for the second act of the bourgeois revolution, which was taking place in England. 
Here, Calvinism justified itself as the true religious disguise of the interests of the bourgeoisie of that time, and on this account did not attain full recognition when the revolution ended in 1689 in a compromise between one part of the nobility and the bourgeoisie. The English state church was re-established, but not in its earlier form of a Catholicism which had the king for its pope, being instead strongly Calvinized. The old state church had celebrated the Merry Catholic Sunday and had fought against the dull Calvinist one. The new, bourgeoisified church introduced the latter, which adorns England to this day. In France, the Calvinist minority was suppressed in 1685 and either Catholicized or driven out of the country. But what was the good? Already at that time, the free thinker Pierre Bayle was at the height of his activity, and in 1694 Voltaire was born. The forcible measures of Louis XIV only made it easier for the French bourgeoisie to carry through its revolution in the irreligious, exclusively political form, which alone was suited to a developed bourgeoisie. Instead of Protestants, free thinkers took their seats in the national assemblies. Comment, free thinkers may mean atheist, or it may also mean just somebody who forms their own independent beliefs. Continuing, thereby Christianity entered into its final stage. It was incapable of doing any future service to any progressive class as the ideological garb of its aspirations. It became more and more the exclusive possession of the ruling classes. They apply it as a mere means of government to keep the lower classes within bounds. Moreover, each of the different classes uses its own appropriate religion, the landed nobility, Catholic Jesuitism, or Protestant Orthodoxy, the liberal and radical bourgeoisie, rationalism, and it makes little difference whether these gentlemen themselves believe in their respective religions or not. We see, therefore, religion, once formed, always contains traditional material, just as in all ideological domains tradition forms a great conservative force. But the transformations which this material undergoes spring from class relations, that is to say, out of the economic relations of the people who execute these transformations. And here, that is sufficient. In the above, it could only be a question of giving a general sketch of the Marxist conception of history, at most with a few illustrations as well. The proof must be derived from history itself, and in this regard, it may be permitted to say that it has been sufficiently furnished in other writings. This conception, however, puts an end to philosophy in the realm of history. Just as the dialectical conception of nature makes all natural philosophy both unnecessary and impossible, it is no longer a question anywhere of inventing interconnections from out of our brains, but of discovering them in the facts. For philosophy, which has been expelled from nature and history, there remains only the realm of pure thought, so far as it is left, the theory of the laws of the thought process itself, logic, and dialectics. With the revolution of 1848, educated Germany said farewell to theory and went over to the field of practice. Small production and manufacture, based upon manual labor, were superseded by real large-scale industry. Germany again appeared on the world market. The new little German empire abolished at least the most crying of the abuses with which this development had been obstructed by the system of petty states, the relics of feudalism, and bureaucratic management. Footnote there, the new little German empire was a term applied to the German empire without Austria, which arose in 1871 under Prussian hegemony. But to the same degree that speculation abandoned the philosopher's study in order to set up its temple in the stock exchange, educated Germany lost the great aptitude for theory which had been the glory of Germany in the days of its deepest political humiliation. 
the aptitude for purely scientific investigation, irrespective of whether the result obtained was practically applicable or not, whether likely to offend the police authorities or not. Official German natural science, it's true, maintained its position in the front rank, particularly in the field of specialized research. But even the American journal Science rightly remarks that the decisive advances in the sphere of the comprehensive correlation of particular facts and their generalization into laws are now being made much more in England instead of, as formerly, in Germany. And in the sphere of the historical sciences, philosophy included, the old fearless zeal for theory has now disappeared completely along with classical philosophy, inane eclecticism and an anxious concern for career and income, descending to the most vulgar job hunting, occupy its place. The official representatives of these sciences have become the undisguised ideologists of the bourgeoisie and the existing state, but at a time when both stand in open antagonism to the working class. Only among the working class does the German aptitude for theory remain unimpaired. Here it cannot be exterminated. Here there's no concern for careers, for profit-making, or for gracious patronage from above. On the contrary, the more ruthlessly and disinterestedly science proceeds, the more it finds itself in harmony with the interests and aspirations of the workers. The new tendency, which recognized that the key to the understanding of the whole history of society lies in the history of the development of labor, from the outset addressed itself by preference to the working class, and here found the response which it neither sought nor expected from officially recognized science. The German working class movement is the inheritor of German classical philosophy. That is the end of the audiobook. No further comments from me except, I like this one a lot. I will probably refer back to this one a number of times. I thought that there were a number of quotable passages in here, and it's not too long, yet it covers some really important subjects. Again, thumbs up, and I'm glad that it's on the basic Marxism-Leninism study guide playlist. What do you think? Leave a question or comment below. We'll continue the discussion there, as always, and otherwise, thanks for listening, and thanks to the current patrons whose names are on the screen. If you'd like to get your name on the screen, head to patreon.com slash socialism for all. You can sign up for as little as $2 a month or more. Every donation's encouraging. They're also materially helpful. I would make some kind of content, even if nobody supported, but the support allows me to spend much more time on this. Also, whether you're a patron or not, engagement counts. Like, share, subscribe, leave a comment, even if it's thanks or good video or random letters. That will boost this video and the channel in the Al Gore rhythm, which propagates this video and this channel through the series of tubes that constitute the internet. And in that way, even if you don't personally have a big social media account, you can help YouTube to recommend this channel and this video to other people who are probably thinking about these things as we live in crisis after crisis of capitalism and bourgeois economics basically just, well, you can have a ship full of 700 migrants drown at sea and that just gets absolutely no media attention. And then you have four billionaires in a sub and that will occupy the front pages for literally weeks. So yeah, if you want answers, we're going to have to do this ourselves. That means agitating, educating, and organizing. So this channel, trying to do some broad-based agitation and education. However, the organizing, that happens in the real world. Hopefully, listening to Socialism for All has convinced you of some of the need to do party work, to organize in and support labor unions, and so on and also to give you some background knowledge so that when you get there, you're not completely cold and starting from zero. But 
yeah, the organizing is going to happen in your area and there are different projects going on in different areas. So get out there, network with your local left, even if the visible parts of your local left seem to be not what you're hoping for, get to know people as there may be other projects that just aren't on the radar so much or that are just starting up or whatever, you know, figure out who's a flake, who's for real, but that is for you to decide. And of course, the channel is a sort of hub for various people who comment regularly to come together, share experiences about, you know, what happened out there in the real world. We love to hear that. And if you have a story about some successful or even not successful, but educational, you know, something you learned from organizing, we'd love to hear about it and promote that on the channel. So go ahead and contact, you know, that's what this is all about. So yeah, let's do this. Thanks for listening and we'll see you in the next video.